0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble!
2: Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, musical highlight of awards season, the 2021 Grammys, were handed out on Sunday. We'll recap the winners of the upper world and the best and worst dressed. (laughs) Not. And then, over the weekend, it was Selection Sunday for the NCAA Men's and Women's Basketball Tournaments. On the next three shows, we put together our bracket for you but it won't have any Gonzagas or Crichtons in it. You might actually find a Duke, though. Stick around to find out who made the cut into our opera playoffs. Plus two-minute drill. At long last, someone's finally invented an effective mass for opera singers that isn't attractive. Lots of sports <laughs> happening, of course. For those of you in the TDO realm, Baylor, Texas Tech, UT, Houston, Abilene, Christian, all in the big dance. Lots of excitement there in the Lone Star State. Lots of excitement with Oliver Camacho, who is just overjoyed at this bracket.
3: (laughs) I love this bracket, but I have to say, I don't know if those of you listen to the, um, what's it called, Daily Podcast, Um, the New York Times Daily Podcast, they did a episode about Odessa um, High and their marching band and their football team I guess it's the same town in Texas as Friday Night Lights and it was a two-part uh podcast I think over the course of two weeks and it was so moving uh, about these kids who don't really care that much about school they're not doing that well but they care about band and they go to band practice it's their like the one thing they really truly need in their lives to like lift them up and to keep them motivated. And it's a heartbreaker. I highly recommend it. That should have been my good how, call. But how, uh,
4: on a scale of one to 10, as a former band myself, how secondhand embarrassingly will, will I find this podcast?
1: I'm I'm an unapologetic band nerd, so I don't think you'll. I would find it embarrassing. It's really up to you how you feel about it. Um, but I am also one of those... I am a
4: clarinet. I'm a clarinet player. If that makes a difference. French horn. Extremely French horn embarrassing. For life.
1: Yeah, yeah. the only oh, instrument
2: oh. I was ever
0: able to play was piano, and even
4: that, not very
0: good. I've
2: got to say, Cummings, to march of Cummings. Matt piano. Cummings not much of a band nerd, apparently. Um, actually, hardcore. Are you also embarrassed to be a Razorbacks fan?
1: Usually, yes. Right now, no. Um, they <laughs> are in the big dance. Um, they got a. A shockingly high seed. They went from number eight, then they lost in the semis of the SEC championship, which kind of knocked things around. Although, this bracket this year is where there's some big, bizarre snubs. There's no Louisville. There's no Duke. Duke's not in it for the first time since 1995. This is the first time in 26 wow. years. They haven't been a part of it. But that's fine. Because it when you're always good at something, every now and then you get knocked down a peg and like everybody feels like there's justice in the world. Whereas my Razorbacks... It's been a long time for them. They were the champions in 1994, so it's been 26 years since they got to a Final Four. Hopefully, this will be the year.
2: Who would have thought that in this year, in these times, that there would be a weird NCAA bracket? Let's talk some opera.
0: Pass or fail, here's Monday evening quarterback.
3: So it's awards season, and the crown jewel of the awards for musicians is the Grammys. And today is Monday, March 15th. Yesterday, the Grammys were handed out. And in a separate and I'm sure much more dignified ceremony (laughs) before uh, CBS broadcast (laughs) the Grammys that people watch, uh, the classical Grammys were handed out. And uh, the Best Opera Recording went to the Mets production of Porgy and Best starring Eric Owens and Angel Blue with friend of the show Frederick Ballantyne and a cast mm-hmm. list that reads like the best of American opera 2020. It beat out a star-studded recording of Handel's Agrippina conducted by Maxim Emelianichev with Grammy favorite Joyce DiDonato and friend of the show Jakub Yosef also in the best opera category were Norman De La Joyo's The Trial at Ruin from Boston Modern Orchestra Project, Carlisle Floyd's Prince of Players from Florentine Opera in Milwaukee, and I'm sure Weston got his heart broken because Der Zwerg by Alexander von Zelinsky from Deutsch, Deutsch oh. Opera Berlin lost oh. to the eventual winner Porgy and Bess*. From the show, Kenneth Overton was part of the team that won a Grammy last night, nominated for Best Contemporary Classical Composition and Best Engineered Classical Album, Everybody's Favorite Grammy. Richard, <laughs> Richard Daniel Poors, The Passion of Yeshua, also known as Black Jesus, won its third category Best Choral Performance. And the team for Passion of Yeshua includes Janae Bridges, uh, the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus, UCLA Chamber Singers, conducted by Joanne Valletta, and of course, friend of the show, Kenneth Overton.
2: Man, the friends of the OBS getting these little Grammy bumps. That's how you liking. win a,
4: a Grammy these days. So
0: the solo vocal <laughs> album box is another category.
3: Ride that wave. You're welcome. <laughs> solo vocal album is another category that typically features recital discs by opera singers. This year's nominees included Cecilia Bartoli's Farinelli album. Friend of the show. Another OBS connection. <laughs> Farinelli. Oh, yeah. Farinelli's the friend of the show, not Tissuli. Really yeah, <laughs> uh, Nicholas Pan and Myra Huang, uh, they made a re- recording of songs by Nadia and Lily Boulanger, which was nominated. There was an American art song recital by baritone Stephen Powell with Friends. And tenor Brian Giebler, new to the scene, uh, he had an English art song recital with pianist Stephen McGee and Friends. But the winner in the solo vocal album category was Ethel Smythe's The Prison, which is actually a vocal symphony with chorus and two soloists, uh, bass baritone Deshaun Burton and soprano Sarah Braley. I'm not sure how that fits into the vocal solo category, but I'll take it because uh, Deshaun Burton is amazing and he needs to be on your radar. And it sort of fits in with the theme of uh, black artists winning this year. So, you know, Porgy and Bess is an all-black cast, minus, was there one white person that cast in that show. Sure. I think it's just a speaking role. Um, Passion of Yeshua. Yeah, there's,
4: there's, I think there's two speaking roles.
3: Passion of Yeshua is centered yeah, for on right black soloists. And uh, Deshaun Burton, uh, he is also an African-American artist. So, I mean, I'm not mad at this. I think this is all great, but I sense a theme there uh, on purpose or not, but I'm for it. So black music matters, folks.
2: Ashley Hardgrave, your hot take on the Grammy award winners.
1: You know, I'm, I'm excited for, I mean, I'm excited for the folks that are in there. Like, especially my CSO man winning for Bobby R. That was awesome. Hooray, hooray. Um, I would listen to Nick Fon, read the phone book or sing the phone book or just look at a phone book. I would pay to listen to that. So any anything he brings to this or Joyce. Nick
3: Pond looks at a phone book set to John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds. Oh. <laughs> take, take my
1: money. Take my Album
3: money. of the year. Ashley has I'll already it. pre-ordered it.
1: Yeah, fully. <laughs> I'm actually funding the whole project. Um, you know, it the Grammys are this crown jewel, but they're the crown jewel of the recording section of music. And the thing that's interesting to think about is that the The classical music world kind of does, you know, with recordings, the reverse of what pop music does, which is really right. like pop music is this is their time to shine. So with pop music, it's like a recording comes out and then if that's popular enough, that's what spurs a tour. That's what spurs the live performance. Classical music is the inverse of that things get performed, they get performed in public, live, and if they're popular, then someone is going to fund the recording of that for documentation purposes. So it's always really interesting to see all of these folks together. I mean, I think it's nice that, you know, we're included in the the Recording Arts Academy, um, that community, you know, any any exposure that we can get that even remotely aligns us with, you know, the likes of Dua Lipa and Mega V Stallion sounds great. Like, sign me up. That's wonderful. <laughs> so I appreciate that we're recognized, but it is funny to see kind of how, the timelines of those things are reversed. Um and also, hooray to Beyonce for making history last night as the most awarded female artist in Grammy history. Also Taylor Swift, I believe, won <laughs> for like third the third time winning like best album. Th- I'm not yeah. as much of a Swifty stan as a lot of people, but you know, I, I recognize that game so good for her too. But more good for Beyonce.
0: And I think that the records <laughs> that she tied are like Stevie Wonder Paul Simon. There's one other person who's won album of the year three times.
1: Yeah, so it's see, like, I mean, you can't fight that.
0: Yeah.
3: But I mean, can you imagine the after party with Cecilia Bartoli in her up? getup? Uh, maybe. Do you think uh, she wore the beard all night? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Showing up with like Billie Eilish and whatever Phineas, whatever his name is, and Megan Thee Stallion. That'd be an awesome event to see all the people yeah, in the same room. I feel
4: like you know? Cecilia and Beyonce would really hit it off. They have like the same vibe
1: uh-huh yeah absolutely and cardi's over in the corner being like did you did you try this section of the bar and we're like yes absolutely Cardi." and then i pull over Joyce donato and me and joyce and cardi go do shots
4: and meanwhile i go and hang out with all of the uh, engineering winners in the back feeling <laughs> awkward
2: this is very unbranded but i'm here for so it i wish i could unhear all these thoughts chalk top coming up now
0: <laughs> chalk talk on Opera Box School.
2: We're going to get into Chalk Talk in just one second. My Michigan Wolverine's the number one seed in the NCAA How bracket. I, I don't know. I mean, I boycotted uh, all college sports this year because I don't think college athletes should be playing. So mm. Michigan football was a disaster. Anyway, Drew Brees is now part of NBC Sports?
1: That is correct. There were all of these speculations. Will he? Won't he retire? First of all, he was always going to retire. He's been there 20 years. He's done. Um, Mostly he's earned it. Not he's too old and can't play, but like he's paid his price. He's done. He's good. Uh, but yeah, he just signed a deal with NBC Sports today. He's going to be on for, you know, NFL commentary. He's going to be replacing Tony Dungy in the booth for Notre Dame games, which are exclusive to NBC. And apparently he's also part of the Olympics coverage team. Not oh. sure
0: how Oh that's yes, going to but... For the Olympic American football event.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in our first round, South Korea takes on Latvia. Get them, boys. Like, I can't imagine. I don't, I don't know.
2: Olympics as it may be. We still got a lot of basketball. And on the next three shows, we have our own March Madness taking place in the opera world. Ashley Hardgrave set it up.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So this is selection weekend for the NCAA tournaments. Yesterday was selection Sunday for the NCAA men's bracket. Uh, And as we are taping right now, the women's bracket is being released. So what selection Sunday is about is all of the teams that are entering March Madness, the big dance. It's got a lot of names. Uh, And there's two ways you can get into this bracket. The first is by being an AQ, an automatic qualifier, based on your record, your conference championship, what have you. And that's about a third or so of the of the teams that go into the bracket. The other two thirds are going to be voted on by the selection committee. And that can be based on any number of things. And like any award season, there's some real surprises, there's some dark horses, there's some snubs. And uh, as we talked about this, we thought, what if we did our own bracket, but let's ignore the AQs. Let's ignore the automatic qualifiers, your war horses, your people in the canon. Let's focus on those surprises, those dark horses, those people that dark you don't always think only. about. Yeah, only dark horses. That's, <laughs> that's the name of my autobiography. Only dark horses. The Ashley Harker <laughs> story. Uh, so what we wanted to do is take a moment to, to talk about some of these unsung heroes that would make, you know, sort of the un-AQ sections of our bracket.
2: Fantastic. Well, let's uh, go with Oliver for his first Baroque pick. Oh, okay,
3: so my, uh, so we're going to do this over the course of um, three weeks, and this week we'll focus on uh, operas that are or 17th and 18th century, and yeah, that's 17th, 18th century, and then uh, we'll also do our post-1900 modern slash contemporary bracket, and then next week we'll focus on Canon uh, era, Romantic era operas, and also classical era operas like Rococo. But my 18th century pick is uh, an opera, I'm sorry, my 17th century pick is an opera by um, Johann gero Conradi. It's an awesome example of the Cosmopolitan Opera is being produced for the port city of Hamburg, and it's an <laughs> opera called Die Schöne und getreue Ariadne, premiering in 1691 at the Theater That on classic that we all know t- and yes. love. That premiering, old
1: chestnut.
3: Premiering <laughs> uh, in 1691 at the Theater on Gens- Gensemarkt, which was reputed to have been the largest and best-equipped theater in Europe. In the early 18th century, the Gensmarkt was associated with the young Handel... Matheson, Kaiser, and Telemann, but it fell into disuse after 1738 and was demolished in 1765. Despite its historical importance, many of the operas composed for this theater are lost, and only one of Handel's for Hamburg opera still exists, that's Almira. The earliest surviving Hamburg opera is Conradi's Ariadne. Conradi was the company's music director in the early 1690s, and as Kapellmeister at Ansbach, he organized performances of operas by Lully and probably benefited from the impressive music library that contained operas by Cavalli, Stefani, and Monteverdi. His version of Ariadne reveals these influences in its hotchpotch of French, Italian, and German musical styles. <laughs> the opera is based on the myth we all know how Ariadne helped Theseus defeat the Minotaur, only to be ultimately betrayed by him and her sister, Phaedra. There's a great, dramatic, tragic heroine in the role of Ariadne, a soprano. Uh, There's a role for Rage, the mother, also known as the bull bleep, the bull effer, uh, (laughs) Possefae. There's also a bass role, the husband, King Minos. The role of Bacchus, who saves the day, is sung by a countertenor. There is a role for an ingenue soprano, Phaedra, There's the slimy tenor role, which has beautifully seductive music, Theseus, and a comic role that foreshadows Papageno, but is sung by a comic tenor, Pomphilius. And this opera was staged in 2003 at Boston Early Music Festival, and there's an amazing recording of it that stars Karina Govan. That is my Baroque Entry. Oliver, we said no war horses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did you not understand the assignment? Keep
2: going, Matt Cummings. Tell us what your pick for Baroque opera is in the bracket.
0: Okay, my pick for Baroque, technically not an opera, but we're gonna count it anyway, oh, okay. is Semele, which is my favorite oh. Handel opera and one that I don't think gets enough attention because people are too busy talking about Ronaldo. They're too busy talking about Giulio Cesare. They're too busy talking about Messiah And Semele has my favorite music of Handel. Um, Also, it was an oratorio, a musical drama, so that it could be originally presented during Lent. But even though it was made to be church-approved, it is still about an adulterous relationship. So not that church-approved. The arias in this opera are so much fun. you got, and really for every character, you've got Iris away for the mezzo-soprano, who plays Juno. Banger. You've got Jupiter the tenor or, or uh, who gets to sing both I must with speed amuse her and where you walk two absolute chestnuts as well I mean the this is just a small sampling it's a handle opera uh, and then uh semely, the title role has like nine arias. Two of my favorites would be myself I shall adore and no no I'll take no less where they just they sing so many notes and in so much it's so much fun and when you're really talking about the italian opera compared to the like these english pieces of handel not only do you get these arias but you also get more interesting chorus music that was mm. written to really like get the english people to come out to these operas cuz they cared more about the choral tradition english and people love chorus they love choruses and and the music more reflects what's going on in the script so that when, you know, when they talk about Eagles wings, there are fluttering wings. It's more like it, it it's just the music itself is a bigger part of the storytelling. It's a fun time,
2: all right. Weston blames over to you for your pick,
4: all right. So I was thinking about alternative baroque operas. and unfortunately, I'm not quite as well versed in, like the Deep, 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 deep cuts that Oliver is bringing to the
1: table here. Nobody um, can, honey. No I don't think anyone
4: can. can. But I was like, well, okay, what do I like in Baroque opera? And I'm like, I, I really, really love Monteverdi. I think there's something about how he composes that's very, um, very specific, uh, very dramatic, and really pushed the art form forward uh, and helped to like, create the basis for uh, what would come after and so I decided that I would cheat a little bit and go with a Monteverdi opera, but not one of the ones that we know exists, because I want to talk a little <laughs> bit about L'ariana, which is a lost opera. It's very it's Monteverdi's uh, second opera. Um, and uh, and like, you know, like anyone who loves L'Orfeo and Il Retorno and uh, uh, Popea, I, I occasionally sit up sweaty in the middle of the night well like where's the other ones where's the other ones and i i, I literally have fantasies of like finding lariana somewhere in an attic but and for now we do have one little piece of the opera that survives and that's the famous lament lamento di, uh, di uh, Ari- Lariana, La uh and uh it's it's uh, it was such a significant piece. Um, the reason it survives is because uh, Monteverdi copied it down um, as a, in different versions. One was a madrigal. One was a, a sort of a solo piece. So we don't uh, necessarily know if it was exactly what was in the opera, any parts that survived. But it's a remarkable piece. If you've heard... Anything from, from this era, you probably recognize that that leap in La Chata Mi Maria right at the very beginning uh, just like really just rips at you. And it created a whole kind of aria in um, in operas. I mean, it, it was the Libas of its day. And in fact, I would say Libas was affected by it. And I always wonder... How did that fit in musically with the rest of the opera? And I think that you have two options here. One, you can go on a National Treasure-style heist and find Lauriana and produce it, in which case, absolutely winner of this bracket, no, no question. Or you could really create a killer program taking that lament that does exist... And creating something around it, maybe uh, pieces like a pastiche from other operas that imitated it, uh, showing how it developed over time, or maybe uh, pushing together a bunch of Monteverdi works. I'm not entirely sure, but I think something like that is a really important piece of musical history that we can construct and enjoy as an audience together. And that's my pick for the Baroque category. And as you
3: can see, as George builds the bracket, he's putting Ariadne Against Ariana, and they are the same character. Isn't that it way. great? I love yes. it.
2: We'll see how it fares, Weston. I don't have high hopes. The
3: battle of the Arianas.
2: Ashley Hargrave.
1: <laughs> so, my pick is. A very special place near and dear to my heart. It is John Gay's The Beggar's Opera. Yes,
4: amazing. It,
1: it was the most performed play of the 18th century, but I haven't seen any company do it in at least a decade and a half. Baroque is also my weakest area, so I just need you guys to let me have this. Um... <laughs> I, again, no one can compete with Oliver when it comes to Baroque. I'm kind of it's not true. sure why we're having this part of the competition, but I was like, I'll give it a college try. Uh, speaking of college, the Beggar's Opera was the first show that I ever did in graduate school. So that's a oh. special place in my heart. Um, oh. I, You know, I love playing pregnant horse; It's super fun. Uh, so basically, it is, it is this amazing satirical snapshot of the 1720s. It, it takes, it's almost like a... In its way, it's almost like a jukebox opera because it's taking all of these popular quotes and themes and dances and it is, you know, talking about sort of the criminal underworld of of the era and really just giving you this beautiful piece of political, the political satire. And I mean, honestly... I'm a sucker for stories about thieves and whores. And this is all about like the criminal underbelly (laughs) of England at the time. It's so delightful. Like I said before, it's a political musical satire. It's this mockery also of the Italian operatic style, you know, making Mm. a nice little jab at our buddy Handel over there and a thumb at the nose of like 18th century government and society and like the piety of marriage and how high and mighty one must be to be able to be taken as a wife. Uh, newsflash it it doesn't none of these characters care about that and it's wonderful (laughs) um there's these really awesome parallels between like the moral degenerates that are in the cast and all of the like highfalutin upper crust nose in the air society uh and all the way through we've got quotes from english and scottish and irish and french tunes uh it's very innuendo laden uh and very eat the rich of the day which is very awesome I do also bring this up to spark your curiosity because one of the reasons I actually bring this up did you know there's a sequel?
4: Oh, to Beggar Two Furious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Beggars Two Electric Boogaloo. No, uh, it's actually called Polly, it's set in the West Indies. Oh, uh, course. Oh, boy. And it's absolutely insane. It's totally bonkers. Lord Chamberlain thought it was so scandalous that he banned it and it did not get performed for decades. I am still trying to get my hands on a copy. But more than anything, I love me some political satire. I love a snapshot of like the scrappy folks of the day. So my choice is Beggar's Opera.
2: Thank heavens you saw Reason, Hardgrave and did not submit Polly into the pool. (laughs) Oliver, back to you for your modern selection for that quadrant of the bracket.
3: So I'm going to go with the 1947 Breasts of Tiresias uh, by Poulenc. Mm. Uh, this is Poulenc That's in a so post-war good. mood, uh, ushering in the surrealism of the day, uh, based on a play by the, of the same name by Guillaume Apollinaire. Uh, what's great about uh, Breasts of Tiresias is that it's actually very easy to listen to. Uh, it has recognizable forms. You know, you hear aria moments, you hear dance moments, and the plot is perfect for this moment. It's a very gender bending plot storyline. Uh, the character of Therese uh, switches gender and she lets her breasts float away like balloons and she becomes the general, Theresias. And there's torturing of husbands and there's a whole question about, you know, heteronormativity and do women need to be mothers in order to be valid. Um, so I think it's a great opera for our time and when we get down to the nitty-gritty of this it has some
2: fantastic music to listen to a very uh cogent case there matt cummings you for the modern pick
0: so i wanted to let my modern pick be maybe a little bit of a dark horse and what could be a darker horse than prokofiev's the fiery angel (laughs) uh an opera that did not even get premiered until after prokofiev died <clears throat> it premiered in the 50s uh, but w- but really reflects the kind of Russian modernists uh, symbolist kind of thinking that was starting to uh, kind of break out. It is not linear in any sense of the way <laughs> in any sense of the word. and the score is just tremendous. It's so angular and full of fury and passion and confusion and the literal devil at one point and also, a woman who is in love with an angel who may or may not exist. Honestly, I have no idea what happens in this opera. because You no just one describe does. the type of music
3: that Weston plays like on his uh, sleeping sound machine. You know, oh, yeah, on, like, it's nice. <laughs> his sons, his, sons, his yeah.
0: I know. He's going to out-Dark Horse me now, too. It's a,
2: it's a great matchup. It's a great matchup. All right, Weston, back to you. Set it up for us.
4: Well, I I was, you know, uh, trying to uh, fall asleep the other night while listening to eight (laughs) songs for a Mad King. And I realized that, wait a second, I feel like Peter Maxwell Davies probably has some operas I don't know about. Uh, And I I did. This is one I found fairly recently, but it was fresh in my mind. And I really really am into it. But uh, Peter Maxwell Davies, Davies Opera Resurrection is at just about as like late modern, early postmodern as you can get. And it's a delight, and it also stars uh, well—not the devil, but it, it does have the Antichrist show up, which is a lot of fun. Um, this is this is one of those operas that feels very cumulative of what the 20th century was all about in opera. It's got, you know, moments of atonality, these wild shifts in style to jazz, to, um, to like church, like liturgical like music to, um, a, a full on rock band. Um, it's peppered with advertisements. It's got satire. Basically, if you've never heard of it, it's about a, the protagonist who's a boy who doesn't speak or move. And, uh, the, uh, conformists of society. Do not like that. This opera was conceived in the 60s, obviously. And so they take him to doctors and psychiatrists, and they perform surgeries on him, which get botched. His head explodes. Uh, this is one of those where you don't really know what happens, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, and he does get resurrected as the Antichrist, and it is a bop. It is such a fun piece. It goes. Uh, it is biting social satire. No one is safe. He attacks religion, parents, uh, um, uh, the state, no one's off the table and it's just a really good time uh if you want uh just some real groovy tunes to uh to bop to
0: there are no groovy tunes
2: <laughs> <laughs> wrapping up the modern bracket is going to be Ashley Hargrave.
1: oh man in a in a turn that could not be more different than what you've just heard uh my selection is Gallantry by Douglas Moore. Ooh. Uh, it's, uh, it's from 1958. It is a 30 minute one-act parody of a soap opera radio play with sung commercials. It is so much fun. I absolutely love this. If you know Douglas Moore, you probably know him for Baby Doe, Devil and Daniel Webster, his film or his ballet music. But I think this is one of the most fun pieces. And it's a nice little snapshot of sort of who he was in the late 50s. And he really lets his hair down with some of these vocal lines. Um, It can really, one of the things I love about it is it can really be like played to the hilt, like the less you take it seriously and the more over dramatic you do your interpretations, the funnier and the more entertaining it is. So you can really just like let your performers run wild with it and have a great time. I absolutely love the sung commercial breaks that are in there because basically you've got... You know, you've got this chorus of people, or you've got you know your four characters, and then all of a sudden, but do do doo do these little other entertainers come out to like sing a song about a product of the day, and then they dance off, and then the soap opera is back. It's it's such a blast. Uh, so this yeah, the ads for Lock and Var and for Billy Boy Wax, they're like perfect for a sort of old timey early TV, radio play sort of stuff. And they're t- also, from a musical standpoint, they're total breaks from the main action that's happening. So like the swells and the overdramatic music of the soap opera make way for like just a little sweet, <laughs> it gives you a moment to kind of you know, reset, which is really nice, and also a lot of those have sort of blues chords that get thrown in in the mix, so it, it just reminds you that it is decidedly American. It is decidedly mid 20th century. Um, but to be fair, like the main action that's happening, the the aria-ish. Points because there's not a ton of like actual arias in this. It's not long enough to really have a lot, but there's a beautiful lyricism to sort of the main storyline and the things that are happening. And I would absolutely put those lines up against some of the more serious programs of the '50s and the '60s. It's taken on by a lot of chamber companies and colleges because it's a little bit easier to produce. You know, it's smaller, uh, it's shorter, it's a lot. You know, there's just a better ease to production. But uh, hear me out, hear me out. What do you think about like one of the biggest houses in the world, maybe the Met? taking some of the biggest voices of today and doing a Zoom radio production of Gallantry. <laughs> How amazing would that be? If it was like jo- jo- Joyce Donato, Matthew Polanzani, Quinn Kelsey, and Pretty Yende. I- why are we not producing mm-hmm. this right now? That would be amazing. Their
0: advertisements would be, if you liked WandaVision, you'll love gallantry. (laughs)
1: Yes,
2: exactly. (laughs) Exactly. The
0: voice must be heard. Got a
2: fantastic (laughs) bracket here. Excited to see how this is all going to play out. Next week on the show, of course, we're going to look at the classical and the romantic divisions as well. Two weeks from this show, we break it all down and we grind it out to a final champion. Of course, you can let us know who you think should be in the bracket and who you think is going to win. It's score at gmail.com. Two-minute drill. It's right now.
0: This just
3: in, the two-minute drill.
2: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened at Opera Land this week.
3: Friend of the show, Zachary James is back in the news. A profile in the Philadelphia Inquirer discusses his pandemic journey away from and back to the arts after nearly quitting the industry last April. I thought, what am I going to do with my life, said Zachary. I started to think about the arts and how important creativity is, how art is the foundation of community and how it makes more well-rounded people. And that's really needed right now. A link to the article can be found on the show notes for this episode.
0: Zach Finkelstein is back in the news, and this time it's not for exposing fake Russian singing competitions. The tenor and friend of the show has been named as one of the 10 classical music thought leaders you should really be following on arts entrepreneur David Taylor's blog. Weston Williams, meanwhile, has been listed on 10 classical music thought leaders you should really be avoiding.
4: Hey! The Schulte Foundation has announced Gemma New as the winner of its 2021 Sir George Schulte Conducting Award, which comes with career guidance, industry connections, and a cash prize of $30,000. New is currently music director of the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra in Ontario, resident conductor of St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, and principal guest conductor of the Dallas Symphony
3: Orchestra.
1: In extremely important news, not one, but two opera companies have announced puppy-related projects. On March 20th, Chicago Opera Theatre will premiere the Puppy episode with music by Matthew Russio, a C.O.T. Vanguard emerging opera composer, and libretto by front-of-the-show Royce Favrick. Then, New Opera West's Puppy production is a piece entitled Pepito, composed by Nicholas Lel Benavides with a libretto by Morella Martin Koch.
2: Shots, shots, shots. At least that's what La Scala Superintendent Dominique Meyer is asking for in a recent appeal to the Italian government. Quote, we need to open all Italian theaters, said Meyer. There's only one solution for artists who cannot use masks, vaccinate them. The statement comes as La Scala has had to postpone performances after a COVID outbreak among members of the ballet.
3: San Francisco Opera has teamed up with UCSF to design a COVID mask designed specifically for opera singers. The solution is a not-so-fashionable, multi-layered mask that will allow for safer singing at closer quarters. Quote, I had the prototype which I made on my kitchen table and it looked fantastic, said the inventor of the mask, Dr. Sanziana Roman. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder.
0: An article from San Francisco Classical Voice shares the experience of performers coming to terms with singing for the camera rather than a live audience. The pandemic has necessitated a shift online, causing some artists to thrive and others to flounder. Opera singers learn their music and have thoughts about it, but defer to the director and conductor, says soprano Sarah Lamesh. Now we have more agency in these at-home virtual projects. Do you trust yourself? That's
4: harder than just having your face on a camera. In trade news, Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra and Chorale has named Tarek O'Regan as its first composer in residence, which will include three new commissions, a concerto concerto for Oud and Orchestra, a major operatic production, and a new work for the Philharmonia Chorale. I suppose all the Baroque composers were dead, and therefore unavailable.
1: West of that joke was so Oud of date. psh Esther Nelson, Boston Lyric Opera General and Artistic Director, will be stepping down after 12 years in the position. Chief Operating Officer Bradley Vernatter will serve as BLO's Acting General and Artistic Director until a replacement
2: can be found. Me. This week's Yellow Cards
3: Germany. The Senate of Berlin has announced a plan for the safe reopening of theaters, concert venues, and opera houses in April. Staatsoper unter der Linden and Deutsche Oper Berlin will act as guinea pigs for in-person performances with required COVID tests and other increased safety precautions.
0: Israel, the new Israeli opera, has opened with a season of concerts and songs and opera highlights,
4: with the audience at half capacity. The United Kingdom, the Royal Opera House has announced its plan to reopen in May, days before the reopening of the Britain Pears Arts' Snape Maltings Concert Hall. Now that's a British bunch of words. The Aldeburgh Festival, however, which takes place in Snape Maltings, will remain cancelled for the summer.
1: USA! Tosca meets Formula One in Austin as LaTanya Mort stars in a production at the city's racetrack in late April. We're not sure if this one counts as a drive-in performance or not.
2: This week's red cards... Austria!
3: Osterfestspieler Salzburg has announced that it will postpone its Easter festival until the weekend of All Saints. No word on whether the festival will lean into this spooky timing just in time for Halloween.
0: France. Opera Toulon has canceled its upcoming performance of Offenbach's La
4: Voyage dans la Lune due to ongoing lockdowns in the country. Germany. Staatsoper Berlin has announced that it will cancel all performances until at least May 1st.
1: Switzerland. Opera House Zurich will also extend its closure until at least the 1st of May.
2: Exit stage right. Former Calgary Opera CEO Bob McPhee has died at 65. McPhee was known as a leader in the Canadian art scene and served the company from 98 to 2017.
3: French dancer, director, and choreographer Pierre Rambert, who for nearly 40 years was the ballet master of the Lido, the Parisian cabaret, died at the age of 69. Friend of the show Rachel Willis Sorensen writes this remembrance. Pierre Rambert is one of the greatest directors I ever had the pleasure of knowing and working with. We did La Traviata together at Opera Nacional de Bordeaux, Bordeaux. At the end of the opera, instead of having Violetta collapse onto the bed, he envisioned her reaching up into a very bright overhead spotlight with a red camellia in her hand, which she dropped right as her soul left her body. I've just learned that Pierre transcended this mortal coil and I imagine him letting his own camellia fall, the memories of countless lives he touched.
0: And on this day, March 15th, was it was the premiere of Tommaso Traetta's Telemaco in 1777 in London, also the premiere of Karl Maria von Weber's Preciosa in Berlin in 1821. In 1895, it was the operatic debut of the Italian tenor Enrico Caruso. Ever heard of him? He sang in the comic opera L'Amico Francesco at the Teatro Nuovo in Naples. In 1929, we say happy birthday to the Italian soprano Antonietta Stella. In 1950, it was the first performance of the Pulitzer Prize award-winning opera The Consul by Menotti. Happy birthday also to English soprano Linda Russell, who who was born in 1952 on this day. In 1956, it was the premiere of Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady on Broadway. In 1962, it was the first major appearance of another tenor, Luciano Pavarotti, ever heard of him, as the Duke in Rigoletto in Palermo. And because Weston threatened to cut me from the show unless I included this one, in 1981, it was the first performance of Karl Heinz Schockhausen's opera Donestag aus Licht.
2: That's your two minute drill.
4: Luciano
3: Pavarotti singing that role, the Duke, which was his Major first appearance in Palermo, uh, but this recording coming from nineteen sixty six. Bella figlia dell'amore. Once again, shout outs! Shout outs to the Zacks. Um, we didn't detail much of what was written in Zacks' contribution to that article in the Philadelphia Inquirer because it's very personal, but it's out there for you all to read. And he has had quite a year. Mm. Uh, God bless him and God bless his family. And of course. Shout out to our friend, Zach Finkelstein, who is just in the news every week somehow. Either he puts himself there, or the Martinovich competition <laughs> puts him there, or he's being named a thought leader. We love him, Zach.
0: Well, hey, ending up on a list with Animajet is not a shabby list to be on.
2: Not the worst. Uh, Ashley Hardgrave, have you been um, doing any work in front of the camera in these Surreal times?
1: No, why do you ask? Um, I mean, besides
2: this show, obviously. <laughs> oh, you,
1: you mean besides every week at this time when we record? <laughs> slash every other part of my day always? Yeah, no, I am... Um, this this poor soprano talking about sort of the shift to performing for the camera. You know, it's, it's not really something that any musicians have learned in their schooling you know at least for you know theater students actors are training you know a lot of them will do acting for the stage they'll also have at least a course in acting for the camera because acting in theater and opera is this acting for the camera is this and there's just such a shift that happens she also mentions that you know a lot of the choices for action and intention are made by the director and in this new world that we have we're doing a lot of self-production and we become the director, the producer, in some cases, the writer and the, and the executive producer, all of those things. So I just, I really resonated with this article, both just for just sort of having that aha moment where that was mentioned. And then also even having in my own experience yesterday, I did have to perform for a camera for a filmed project as a singer. And it was, I I did that. I realized how weird it was. And then I read this article and I'm like, this is everything that I just felt because I didn't, you know, I didn't have that same sort of room of people and that energy to play off of, and right. it's it's just a different environment. Uh, it's not it's not dead, but you have to be mindful of that shift. And until you've actually done it, you don't recognize how different the muscle memory is. And the you know the notion of being in front of cameras as much as we are now is really sort of shaping how we perceive ourselves, how we work as performers. And even for folks that aren't in the performing world, you know, there's a thing going on in the plastic surgery world at the moment called the Zoom boom. And plastic surgeons cannot huh. find openings in their appointments right now because so many people have been spending so much time looking at themselves and are like, oh, I really want to change everything about myself. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it just, I, as soon as I saw that article, it made me think of this one and how all of this is tied into, how we, pardon the pun, see ourselves and how we see ourselves so differently in the pandemic than we did before, both as artists and as people.
4: I'm just glad we're all so uh, so ridiculously attractive so that we can really get through this hard time together. And we don't have to wear hats to hide
3: our balding or our
1: do hot, the or do Our the cuddle, hotness helps, like, our hotness helps, yeah. And we definitely
0: don't really have to wear long sure. singer's masks that allow yeah. us to take drinks while we're recording. <laughs> Uh, these so singers' masks have been a thing for the last year for obvious reasons. I can, yeah. I, can um, I can
2: illustrate. Let me just illustrate really quickly this, this <laughs> singer's okay, mask. I have, it, I have that
3: exact one. I
0: good. have so I have one in black too. You got one and in when black.
2: they this is the this is the side profile. If you can still hear me on the there you, mic, go. There you there go.
0: look like a, it looks like you're wearing a Sperry on your face. It's, it's just <laughs> like a big old boat shoe. Like that's a out.
2: like a cod piece is how I like to think. Yeah.
0: It. I mean tomato tomato. But the <laughs> thing about singing with a mask on is just that the the physicalness of singing is very different in particular like you the j- singer masks do not work the way that the human jaw works particularly if you're like concerned with getting a really close seal around here where things tend to move around when you move your jaw imagine that and so this new mask design that's kind of like a feed bag that just h- hangs from your from the top of your head I get
4: I get pelican throat vibes from it yeah. personally <laughs>
0: it it does seem like it might solve a lot of the problems that singing and masks can create in terms of like introducing weird tension into the way that you sing or figure or making it really hard to figure out how to regulate your breath in the same way that you're used to when you don't get that kind of feedback loop from the room uh exactly. it's really like, really similar to what ashley was talking about about feeling the energy of the room when you're working with mm-hmm. collaborators mm-hmm. just like feeling the way that your body and your voice interacts with the room is also completely cut off from you when you have That's exactly point. Uh, i
3: mean the the duck mask that you just demonstrated for our podcast listeners um, it's the worst, and if you haven't done a gig with one of these yet, it's literally the worst. I mean, as Matt was saying, like we as singers are used to singing in a room and making that adjustment um, over the course of rehearsal of how we sound in that space, but usually you can rely on a feeling in the end. But with the duck mask, you your vibrations go right to this thing that's like three or four inches away from your face, and you yeah. hear yourself. And you automatically begin to edit your sound based on what you're hearing, and it's not—it's not what the audience is hearing. It's like what literally is coming out of your mouth three inches, and you—you sound like hell three inches away. Yeah. From and it doesn't—it doesn't feel great either. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who, knows aside, need, yeah. uh, who knows if they're going to
2: need—who knows if they're going to need masks or not for the uh, Austin Opera production of. Tosca later on. Look, I'm going to be honest, right? Like I have been on companies using the drive-in thing, whether it was in Europe or in this country. I've been on them. Okay, nobody wants to hear me rant about that anymore. I think this is a brilliant idea, and here's why it's brilliant: is that
1: finally, it's not, it's not.
2: Where's the marker? Here, it's not only because they are doing something outdoors, which is safe, but also because they are using a unique space. I don't know how they're going to connect Tosca to a Formula One track. I don't know if they're going to try. I don't know what that Scarpe connection is. Scarpy is just going
4: to tear around the track.
3: And oh, I going to say, he's um, going to drive
0: a car right in <laughs>
3: Yeah, turn- like gets run over by, you know, whatever, six speeding.
2: Tosca's
1: wearing a Dale Earnhardt shirt. She yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Here, here, va, Tosca, here's va. the point.
2: I do not understand why opera houses or opera companies are so desperate to get back into their opera houses. Isn't it so blindingly obvious that this is your moment to be doing work outdoors in unique environments, football stadiums, race car tracks, uh, you know, ice, ice hockey, whatever it is? Like, this is the moment we are then. I want to see opera companies seizing that. Weston, I want to see puppies.
4: I also want to see puppies, George. And that was the soapbox that I wanted to end this on. This has been a rough year, folks. Well, as we're recording this, this is almost exactly a year after uh, the United States shut down and we've been feeling it. And if there's one thing we need, it's online animated puppy based opera projects more than anything. I just want to like sit there and just like be sung at by a by a little cute pupper doing his little big puppy eyes. And I want to just feed him treats and give him little tummy scritches. And that's all I need. That's what I need until the pandemic's over. And I think that any project with puppies is a good is is absolutely what we need right now. And I will die on this hill more puppies in opera, and oh. uh, th- that's all I have to say.
2: So just, just to be clear, though, so you're going to clean up after them?
4: Oh, no, not, not, not even a little bit. No, no, that's your job, George. Good call.
3: Bad call. On Opera Box score.
2: All right, we're going to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. We're going to kick it off with Oliver Camacho.
3: Just a shout out to our friend of the show and recent guest, Kimon Murat. Uh, who was named as part of the roster for l2 artists and he joins new on this roster samuel ramey <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh composer <laughs> kamala sankram so up he, and comer sam ramey he's exactly Dark Horse. he's doing okay uh his obs bump is really paying off for him
4: matt cummings uh
0: shout out to our hometown team at lyric opera of Chicago that uh, in the last week has put a bunch of their audio broadcasts on their website to stream, including the last show that I saw before life changed for everyone. Queen of spades.
3: Hmm.
2: Weston Williams. I just, I just love the haircut that you have. Oh, thank you. George. Ashley Hardgrave.
1: <laughs> uh, so my could call this. Oh, it just warms my heart. Um, we're seeing more vaccinations happening everywhere. I myself got dose one last week, so it's, it's very exciting. Uh, but, Possibly the most exciting dosage that happened, uh, is a report that came out of the Berkshire Eagle, uh, where Yo-Yo Ma got his second dose of the vaccine. And, uh, with the, with the implementation of the vaccine, there's a 15 minute incubation period where you have to wait after you've gotten the shot to see if you have any sort of like negative or adverse side effects. Uh, and so while he was waiting his 15 minutes, he pulled out his cello in this like community center where he'd gotten the vaccine and just played for everyone in the room for 15 minutes. And if that doesn't restore your faith in humanity on all the levels, I don't know what will.
2: So marvelous. Bob McPhee again, passing away this week. Let me say, I met Bob at a opera America conference many years ago, and he was the only man wearing a cowboy hat. There was something of the (laughs) Calgary stampede in that man's body. Bob McPhee, rest in peace. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen this bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. And just subscribe to the podcast. on Stitcher or favorite, our show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed at Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is probably not a good idea. It's a great idea! Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about Opera Clutching Your Statuette. We're back with an all-new show next week when the San Francisco Opera Center's new artistic director, Carrie Ann Matheson, goes inside the huddle. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more March Madness. Join us.